The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, policy, media and technology, authors, storytelling. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We had to take in as children, you believe a lot of the things they talk about your dad and then so I grew up believing he was uh, some kind of drug dealer for a lot of years, and then the political stuff started coming out, and that's when I got wise. It's deep into the summer. We're readying a slate of big live shows, and you, dear listener, got in touch to ask me for a supercut of episodes where my radio show met my book, Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. So here goes. From a cocaine cowgirl to the salutatorian gone rogue, to the son in search of his notorious late father's truth. In case you missed it, Hotel Scarface on Full Disclosure. Stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast, NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. Follow, subscribe, and rate us at linkfulldradio.com. We are on all the social media channels at handle Full D Radio. Hotel Scarface on Full Disclosure, where my book meets my radio show. I start with some of my 2017 conversation with Molly, the femme fatale mutiny club hostess, one of the guys, one of the kingpin's favorite at the infamous hotel. I want to step back and explain this scene in Miami. Uh, This was at the center of really reefer madness in Miami in the 1970s. Everybody was moving marijuana. There were bales of marijuana that were floating ashore everywhere. They called them square groupers. And the city broadly in America was having its cocaine coming of age. And this club and hotel, uh, 10 miles south, let's say five miles south of downtown Miami, was the most exclusive uh, watering hole in Miami at the time. And that's where you showed up. You heard the tips were great. You heard you you get to meet fascinating people and try fascinating, expensive wines. And uh, they had all sorts of Playboy casting calls there and the like. Tell us about your first day on the job there. What was it like walking in? Well, the first day I was absolutely petrified because um, Mr. Goldberg, Burton, the owner, he um, insisted everyone wear hats. And the girls got all made up and had these amazing outfits on, designer outfits, designer shoes, um, makeup done to the nines with hats. And I just walked in so intimidated and so frightened and everybody there, every single girl that I met there was just so kind to me and so um, accommodating. They helped me with my makeup. They helped me uh, buy clothes, get dressed. And after a week, I was hooked. I just thought it was absolutely amazing wearing these fabulous clothes, walking around this beautiful, beautiful nightclub, meeting the most amazing people you can imagine that are now legendary figures and some aren't with us anymore. But just so much, so much fun and so much excitement. And just you could just feel the power in the room as you walked around. Weren't you intimidated? Not so much, a little bit because of more so than the girls than the guys that were there. The guns didn't bother me. I was raised that way. Um, none of that bothered me. The drugs didn't bother me. It was all the beautiful women, I guess, because I'm, you know, when I see a beautiful woman, I, a beautiful woman, I get a little, uh, you know, a little shy. So you explained in the book that you felt like Superman, Superwoman, the first time you took a toot. Um, <laughs> I guess you were open-minded enough by then you had called off your engagement uh, to this to this young man. And did you did you say, well, I'm at this club and I'm all in? No, actually, him, him and I, we had decided uh, to part our ways. Um, I was, uh, he wanted to go up to New York. I wanted to stay in Miami and work at the club. And he wanted to move to New York. So he ended up moving to New York. I stayed at the club, kept working. And for a long time, I didn't do drugs because that's how it wasn't how I was raised. But after I did that first hit and it went right to my head within 10 minutes, 
Um, I felt like Superman, like I could do anything. I could ch- solve all the world's problems. I was just on top of the world, on top of the world. And that's what it is that gets you hooked into that drug, that the cocaine. Well, who, who offered it to you? Was it another waitress? Was it, I mean, what was the reputation of cocaine? I cited in the book this 1975 Playboy story uh, about cocaine, this very long treatise by a, an award-winning author on, this is like the champagne of drugs. It was not addictive, supposedly. Your dentist was trying it. Uh, it was high class. If people were doing it in book clubs in New York, it seems like that was the initial reputation of cocaine before things got dangerous. Yes, absolutely. We had silver straws. We had silver spoons. Um, we had little Twizzlers we would wear around our neck made of um, gold for champagne. And it was just a whole nother way of life. But the um, everyone was doing it then. It was just the thing to do. That and the Quaaludes, the Roar 714s. Um, the Roar 714s with Hugh Hefner infamously called Thigh Spreaders, which was... <laughs> Exactly right. I never, uh, that was not my drug of choice because it made me uh, sleepy. I always preferred cocaine because it made me up, it made me high, it made me exciting, it made me um, feel exactly like you said, like Superman. So uh, did, did a co-worker introduce it to you? I mean, did somebody nudge you? you? You were, after all, raised in a conservative environment. You didn't do drugs. Well, everyone would give you $100 bills and grams of cocaine for tips. That's how you, you know, you made money. You had grams of cocaine and $100 bills. And one of the girls is like, you should really try it. You should try it. And because I was giving all my cocaine away to all the other girls. And they're like, you should try it. And I was like, oh, my God, I am so incredibly tired. Let me give it a go. So one of the girls said, yeah, go in the bathroom. I'll cover for you. And I went in the bathroom. And I came out and wow, what a difference 10 mix makes. That's all I can say. What was, did it feel? Uh, did, did you black out? I, I, I mean, I didn't no. do my requisite research for this book, Molly, and that I didn't try it. <laughs> Everybody asked me, even the editor at Penguin Random House. I said, sorry, I just did it. I never got around <laughs> to it, frankly. <laughs> no, it, it, uh, it makes you, it's like a, amphetamine so it makes you up it makes you high it makes your senses clearer it it, i don't know if it actually does this but this is the way it made me feel like i could think more clearly i could speak more clearly i could just function everything was uh at a faster pace you you don't get tired it's like drinking 50 cups of uh, cortaditos 50 little shots of cortadito those little those little (laughs) coffee thimbles in Miami that everybody drinks. It's pretty much, it's, it's, it's why they say we've never really had a, uh, you know, I guess, uh, was, oh, gosh, it's, it's why Red Bull never took off in Miami or whatever else it is. And that these cortaditos were everywhere. But exactly. you, had King, you had Kingpin sitting there in the club, in the corner boots, they called them cocaine cowboys. These were gentlemen that would order all sorts of food on the table, uh, bottles of champagne, um, Sh- Ross, Rothschild Lafitte, 1959, 1960, and it, it sounded like it was just one giant buffet, and anybody could toot what they wanted. Cash was everywhere. Money was no object. Exactly. You would go to someone's table. You would sit down for a few minutes. You would have a glass of champagne or some wine, um, eat. Um, sometimes I used to go before my shift began, and I would go upstairs and have dinner and put it on one of the guy's accounts. I would order a bottle of wine. Um, have a filet mignon or a prime rib because Manny was absolutely our chef was absolutely amazing, and then uh, take a hit, boom, showtime, ready to go, go downstairs and start my shift. Um, what were you getting paid then? You have to remember your first hourly wage at the mutiny. It wasn't a lot. I mean, I I, I can't even remember. It's been forty years ago, but it definitely wasn't a lot. I mean, you were basically there. For the people, the tips, and the drugs, and the parties, and the excitement, and everything like that. It was just one big party, night after night after night after night. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Mutiny Molly, the unlikely Bible belter turned gunwoman turned, uh, you know, doper's favorite girl at the Mutiny. Um, She was one of the guys everybody referred to her as, this legend of this gorgeous brunette. In Miami that I had to find, and I, I scoured the world and 10 years ago found her, and you will read her story and then some in my forthcoming book, Hotel Scarface. Molly, tell me about that first interaction with um, 
some of the most powerful drug lords in Miami. I mean, surely the other girls must have talked like that's the guy whose table you want to cover. Or, that's the guy who you want to look out for. There was always this symbiotic relationship where a hostess would tip off a doper if a cop was coming in or if his ex-wife was coming in. Yes, like some of the girls were um, uh, very um, – everybody had their own favorites. So the girls that I were, was work, that I were, were working with at the club – they would say, oh, this is uh, Rudy or this is, you know, Carlito or this is this and that. And they'd say, well, this one's a generous tipper. This one's fun, blah, blah, blah. But then I became kind of uh, as much as you can with a hired assassin. I became friends with him. And that would be Ricky. And we ended up um, – he ended up living with me. And we just ended up in a friendship. And I ended up with that group of Rudy Redbeard and Colleen Casada and some of the other people. And it just, I was one of the guys to them. It was, I had the best parts of a woman, but I also had the good parts of a guy that I could watch football with them. I could go on deals with them. I could drive for them and I could handle the guns. And it was, they just loved me because I had the best parts of, of both man and, and women. Now, let so, me explain for everybody. When you talk about Ricky, this is one of the most notorious characters in a notorious the most notorious era in miami history ricardo monkey morales everybody out there you should really google him and follow his life story he is he's kind of the <laughs> spirit animal of this book if you will um mm -hmm. some people say he was called the monkey because of his 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 you know pro simian appearance um he had a sloped back he had big ears he had a very menacing look um, others say he was a monkey because he swung from vine to vine. He would at one point be your best friend. At another point, he'd be ratting you out to the police. But regardless, this is someone who initially worked for Fidel Castro's secret police uh, in the revolution in 1959 and 1960, got disillusioned, came to Miami, fled through the Brazilian embassy, started working for the CIA and uh, became a contract assassin. Um, was taking out Fidel Castro loyalists, was raiding the coast of Cuba, attacking sugar refineries. Um, after the Bay of Pigs crisis, the botched invasion of Cuba, he agreed to get sent to the Belgian Congo in Africa to fight a proxy war. He came back super disillusioned. And when Vietnam took center stage and under President uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, we weren't paying that much attention to Cuba anymore. He turned his skill set to becoming a bomber, a doper, a drug runner, a prolific informant, a kind of a man of all seasons. I mean, this is maybe the most bizarre resume you'll find in the history of Miami. But to me, he was just Ricky and he was uh, a nice guy. I was never, ever really scared of these guys. I respected them for what they did. But um, there was a, also a gentleman there that kind of became like my godfather that watched over me and made sure that I never got hurt or made sure that nobody would take advantage of me. And uh, his name was Bernardo. You were listening to some of my 2017 episode, Cocaine Cowgirl. Catch it in its entirety wherever you get your podcasts. Now, some of my chat with Nelson Aguilar, the Cuban immigrant who corrupted the 1980s Miami Dolphins as a major cocaine supplier. Jimmy Carter, and I don't care what anybody says, was a good, righteous man, and he saw a country in need, and he opened the doors, and then Castro made a fool out of him, because if Castro would have realized, when Castro found out, oh, I'm losing everybody, you know, the open door, I'm going to stay with nobody, then Castro, being the smart guy that he is, he went to the prisons and unloaded in the in the insane asylums. And he knew the result that that was going to have in Miami and the havoc that it was going to create. So he pretty much damned Carter, you know what I mean? But Carter was a good human being. Okay, many would say he damned Miami. If you see Miami by 1981 becoming the murder capital of the United States, you were in prison by 1980, correct? Yes, sir. And you met a lot of these Marielitos. You know, you want to take Tony Montana from Scarface. He is the... You know, the, the, the screenplay Marielle refugee uh, criminal flushed from Cuba, ends up in Miami, gets processed under an overpass, and within a few months finds cocaine riches and is shooting up Miami and he's a hired hand. What kinds of people did you meet on the inside, the criminals? I met all kind of interesting people, to tell you the truth. But most, most of them are mediocre. And then you got the ones that are really intelligent. You have some that are good people. 
And you have some that are psychos, you know what I mean? It's all kinds. It's gotten worse now because now you have the gangs. And even, you wouldn't believe this, Robin, but the Mexicans got gangs, the Cubans got gangs, the Americans got gangs, the blacks got gangs, everybody's got gangs. But here's the deal. By 1980, you were part of a bona fide, uh, uh, you know, charismatic drug smuggling gang in Miami, the Willie and Sal crew. They raced boats. They Well, they no, played... no, 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 no. Let me clarify that. Let me clarify that. I was I was like a mino. When you compare somebody like to Willie and Sal, like Scarface is min- minuscule compared to Willie and Sal. So, you know, they were like the epitome of what we all would want to be in our own twisted world. Tell us about them. As we talk about Mariel, tell us about Willie and Sal, because you had that first generation of smugglers. We talked about the CIA-trained people who came here. They were not getting a rematch under Jimmy Carter. They turned their skill set, their master navigational skills into drug smuggling. Uh, But then when they turn on each other, and there's a lot, there's a great informant culture and people snitching on each other, these two charismatic guys from Miami Senior High who were sent here as youngsters from Cuba, just like you were, they become, you know, they they become the ones who pounce on that opportunity. And in the end, they have something like a $2 billion syndicate. Um, What was that like to, to look at these guys who were your contemporaries who suddenly were the bomb? It was it was amazing. I mean, I I've always looked up to, and I mean, I don't want to get in trouble with it, with the wrong people, but I've always looked up to Willie and Sal. I think that they were the epitome of smugglers, and you know what? They didn't. I mean, they, they were very nonviolent. I don't care what anybody says and how things turned out. They were very very. Non, they were they took the high ground. If you owed them a, a hundred kilos and you didn't pay them, it was your loss because you were like put away, you never could do business with them again. And that was a bigger loss than making the hundred keys. Anyway. So they were they opportunistically enlisted a lot of these Marielle guys who who came in here, who washed up by the tens of thousands uh, on boats and were processed in Miami. Um, this is kind of, you know, I, I'd like to portray this as the mentorship of the, the, the CIA trained guys, training the young guys who were sent by their parents and aunts and various people like you in the 60s. And then you guys suddenly, in a dystopian way, had to mentor uh, these really poor refugees who showed up. I've spoken to m- members at the mutiny who said, I would remember these guys would walk in, they'd get smuggled into the the exclusive hotel and club with their jeans rolled up at the bottom because they were donated from the Little Havana Charity Center. But within six months, they had their own table at the mutiny. They, one bought a yellow Lamborghini. Coca-Cola. I mean, is that, does that, that kind of blows the mind that you can go from rags to riches in six months. I mean, you never saw that kind of uh, advancement happen on the Lower it East Side. It happened all the time in Miami, all the time. But I would say if you, if you look at Boardwalk Empire, it pretty much happened in that time too, you know. It, it, it just it was a boom. It was a bonanza. Everybody was in on it. The banks were like in on it big time. I mean, you know, how how can you feed all that money through the system without counting on Citigroup? On Citigroup. That's true. Now you talk about you talk about the uh, peculiar economy um, during the time of Marielle. This should be a time of abject misery in Miami. You talk about 1980. 1981, race riots. The county morgue is so overrun that it has to lease refrigerated trucks from the Burger King Corporation. Uh, Cocaine is everywhere. Uh, There are shootouts on the turnpike. And yet, as you illustrate, the economy is booming. The Federal Reserve Bank of Miami has a bigger surplus than all the other regional feds combined. Um, You can argue that, um, you know, transitively, this disconnect from Cuba and this antagonism over several decades has really benefited the the economy of Miami. Of course. I mean, Miami, listen, I don't care what anybody says. Miami would not have been what it is today where they just rated it. It's one of the top 10 cities in the world. Billionaires come over here. They're not only coming over here, they're coming here to live. You understand? And Miami would have never, ever, been that in the time frame that it did it in without the drug business being a huge part of fueling the the economy. And, you know, if anybody thinks I'm wrong, well, I'm sorry, and I apologize tremendously. And by extension, Nelson, I mean, the drug business would not have been possible, you're saying. It was really suborned by the United States government. After all, the CIA trained these people to go in and take out Castro. It didn't happen the second time around. Carter was considering normalizing relations with Cuba. 
uh, as early as 1976, but I understand it didn't happen because uh, Cuba was was meddling in with Angola and the Cold War was was ramping up. Uh, could you imagine how different history would be if uh, Cuba and the United States were again talking to each other in the early 70s? You know, my biggest dream, and maybe people will hate me for it, but I wish I would have been like the Puerto Ricans and I would have been a state of the United States because the best thing that could have happened to any human being in the world is just to be born in the United States. So, you know what I mean? It's It would have been great. And, and, and that's where the big problem is right now, that so many people on so many sides have so many grievances that nobody's putting ahead the country. And there's patriots, and they still, they can't see that our country's been suffering for 56 years and nothing's worked. So if this works or not, it might not work. It might be the worst thing in the world, but Jesus Christ, I would love to be able to go back to my country and be free where men can be free. You know, there was a Cuban fighting with George Washington, and that's a provable fact. We know about freedom. We just lost it for a while. You know, Nelson, in your restaurant, I remember when I was sitting with you, you have a restaurant in, in uh, Miami Beach, and there's a a, a, a painting by uh, uh, Luis Posada Carriles, who uh, in Cuban-American terms in Miami, he's looked at as a patriot. Others, uh, externally, people in Havana would call him a terrorist. He was linked to the blowing up of a Cuban jetliner uh, well, in the Well, you know, Monkey Morales might have had something to do with that, or Castro might have, sure. have something but to do with But my point that. is, my point is there is this duality kind of that there's these people, you know, uh, People who are celebrated in the streets of Miami, where certainly there's been a hell no approach to any sort of normalization uh, for decades. You you tell me, and everybody's realizing that generationally, their grandkids just aren't as passionate about this as they are. They're kind of like, you know. They've been assimilated by the American dream. Right. America's been great to the Cubans. I mean, you know, even the ones that get, you talk about the other day, there's some that get here now. And six months later, they're robbing from Medicare hundreds of millions of dollars. And nothing changed. So, and there's some that get here and work their asses off and make it legitimately. But America's been very good to to the Cuban people. We're talking with Nelson Aguilar, who was taken out of Cuba as a small boy, uh, so his aunt could get him out of the clutches of communism. He grew up in Miami, uh, was very much miseducated in Miami, took a couple of wrong turns. Now he looks back on his life of 52 years. He spent, what, 23 years in prison? Yeah. Stop counting. I don't even know. (laughs) And now suddenly the United States and Cuba are on the brink of normalization. And we wanted to kind of look at lessons learned and actually spin this forward to a certain extent. Is there a part of you... Now, as a really as a dyed-in-the-wool capitalist, and and frankly, you are a capitalist in the, in the late seventies. Hundred percent. Who's looking at this as an opportunity now? Uh, what what is Cuba going to be really eager to get its mitts on? Well, look personally, for me to be thinking about making and coming from an ex-dope dealer, it sounds crazy, but personally, for me thinking about making money off the pain and suffering of the Cuban people, I'm not going to do that. I'd rather rob a bank. And I'm not going to do that either because, thanks God, I got a little restaurant and I make a couple of dollars and live well. But, you know, there has to be. The United States and Cuba have historically been friends. I don't know if if you heard me. A guy was with George Washington fighting in the revolution for America to be free. He was a Cuban. I think he's buried in Mount Vernon somewhere. Full disclosure, stay with us. You were listening to some of the episode, The Miseducation of Nelson Aguilar. Catch it in its entirety wherever you get your podcasts. We are on NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. Here's a bit of the story of Owen Bann, the nice Jewish kid from North Miami Beach who went from being salutatorian at Boston University to a small-time drug dealer and big-time partier at Miami's Hotel Mutiny. If you can relate to uh, the character in The Graduate. I was like Dustin Hoffman floating on a raft in my, actually in my neighbor's pool because we didn't have a pool. We're the only ones on the block that probably didn't. Um, thinking, what am I going to do with my life? You know, and nobody came up to me and, you know, said the magic words plastic. Uh, so I had to start thinking about what did I want to do. My parents said to me at this point, hey, son, you know, how long are you just going to hang out at the house? Uh, you really need to get a job or do something. Were you, were you just in your bedroom with the door closed? 
Uh, no, I like the sun. I was actually laying in the backyard uh, playing with our Irish setter. But I, you know, I really hadn't talked to many people. Uh, certainly didn't have really any friends or real friends that I formed from Boston University. Was your brother? Me. Was your brother advising you? Was he pulling you off to the side? Was he taking you out to dinner? You know, my brother and I really weren't close. There was an intense sibling rivalry. Uh, I was the one in high school getting great grades, and it was like Mike would be more like your younger brother, Owen. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was the one, you know, in college winning debate tournaments, uh, getting written up in the Boston University newspaper. I had published about six or seven uh, book reviews in professional journals. My parents loved it. I mean, I was the favorite son. I have to admit it. And I think there was a natural resentment on my brother's part that, you know, I was I was a star. Uh, and then things shifted. Now, talk about things shifting. Uh, and everybody out there listening to this, I'm cribbing from notes that, that uh, Owen meticulously put together in a in a kind of like a nice Kinko's binder, the, the mysterious story of uh, Owen Band's uh, route from summa cum laude to the present. Um, you were on a speedboat, uh, what, at the middle of the night with a duffel full of uh, guns, uh, moving, well, moving marijuana? I mean, I, it, 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 how did that happen? From right. the pool, from the pool to that? Let me explain. Parents, being parents, they wanted me to get a job. <laughs> And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, I thought about it. Uh, something I never told you, I had taken a job briefly with the John Elliott Blood Bank in Miami. As a representative, they were moving to a voluntary blood donor system. And the job basically was convincing people that were donating blood all these years that, hey, keep doing it. Uh, the credit we said you were giving, it's a long story, but... Uh, it was a job basically PRing for the blood bank, lying to the you know, donors that uh, to keep donating blood that they're going to get credit for it. I didn't like the job. I felt it was living a lie and it was being deceitful. And I left. And uh, what did I do? One day I was home. Uh, actually, a friend of mine from high school came over. Uh, we were smoking a joint wrapped in vanilla in a banana rolling paper. And uh, on the matchbox, it said, become a bartender. And I thought, well, this might be a great solution to get out of the house. I won't have to be around at nights, not see my parents. So I enrolled in bartending school in North Miami Beach. You got this gig. I still want to take you back to that speedboat because that's right. where really, if you broke bad at what point, at what point did you convince yourself, you know what, yeah, I can do this. It's one thing to, you know, to, to get your pals in, in uh, North Miami Beach and Atlanta and Long Island dime bags, and this is the 70s, and I'm not apologizing for that era. It's another thing to go, you know, really into the heart of, of late 1970s narco-trafficking Miami. Well, it turned out the first bartending job I had was at a club called Club Alexandre, uh, which was one of the first Cuban nightclubs. Uh, it predated the mutiny as far as the cocaine and marijuana crowd. Uh, and I was very like, you know, I was a likable guy. Uh, customers came in, everybody from bankers uh, to cocaine and marijuana kingpins. And the guys liked me, and I hung out with them, you know, after work. And uh, someone said to me, hey, uh, Julio, you know, you know, Owen's a great guy. Why don't we let him give him a chance to make some money? And I was laughing. I know what these guys did. You know, they'd have one Chevis, one black label, and leave $100 and say, keep it. Uh, so I wasn't naive to what was going on at the bar. I mean, we had a guy come in with his pet leopard and let it run around on the dance floor, you know. So I knew what these guys were about, and, you know, I thought about it, and, you know, I wasn't, I was kind of scared about reapplying to law school. I was afraid of becoming, you know, a failure again. And, you know, I was kind of envious of what I saw was going around. Wait, wait, you were scared of reapplying to law school where you almost I, I, got into Harvard Law, but you were not scared of accepting the gig to do the following. Tell us what you did. All right. Uh... The gig itself? Set up the scene, the evening, the opportunity, right. the mandate. Uh, it was the middle of the week. It was, a, it was a what they would call a smuggler's moon. 
uh, and I had left with some guys on, a, I think it was a 36-foot scarab open fisherman out of the uh, Coconut Grove Marina. Uh, we went out practically to the Gulf Stream. Uh, when we got out there, there was about six or seven other speedboats waiting in line to help unload. Uh, it was primarily marijuana from a freighter. We attached a cable from the freighter boat, and they were lowering down bales of marijuana. They were, I'd say they weighed about 50 to 70 pounds each. Uh, there was also a couple silver, they looked like photography uh, briefcases, which I expected was either coke or money. And, you know, I was kind of exhilarated. I was kind of scared. I didn't know what to do. The guys I was with, I mean, I had gone out drinking with them a bunch of times and I liked them. I mean, they made me feel, they actually made me feel for the first time that I fit in somewhere. But these guys are not, these guys are not summa cum laude types, right? They're not, you know, one L- guy, LSAT guys. No, they weren't. I mean, they were working class Cuban kids, kids. They were, we were all probably in our early 20s. Uh, one of them later went on to actually went to uh, the uh, flight school across from Miami, uh, the Baker School, and learned how to fly planes to Columbia. But, you know, we're all kids. It was an adventure. I didn't know that this was going to be the so you were there you were there to lift bales essentially or you were there as a lookout you were there i mean you Uh, you write in your notes that you had a duffel full of did you even know how to use a weapon not at that point my dad worked for ascap in new jersey and later in florida and if you worked for ascap which represented songwriters and licensing they would license restaurants and hotels and, you know, the guys he had met in Jersey, all last names ended in a vowel. Okay, understood. But who taught you? I mean, they just handed you a duffel bag full of semi-automatic was, weapons and, and well, told you to get I on was, a speedboat? I was in the line. I was the second or third guy in the line, and I was helped stacking the uh, bales. Were there explicit down. instructions to you, Owen, listen, you're going to get my back, or you're just going to be a lookout? What What were they, they? Even if they said it over beers or joints, we do you recall? Say, I, was, I was told we're going to unload a boat. And I said, you know, okay. And I, I, I think I assumed the, because of who the people was and one of the guys, you know, uh, Elvero, uh, that it was going to be marijuana. I mean, I, I, as I said, I, to the very last minute, I had reservations about doing it. How did your Crohn's deal with this? If you, if you were susceptible to having <laughs> intestinal distress, I would have to say, I was having probably the best time of my life tending bar. I mean, it was stress-free. Uh, I had a girlfriend for the first time in my life, even though she was, you know, an escort. Uh, I was making some money. I was living away from my parents, uh, and I was, I was, I was relatively healthy. Um, and when these guys, you know, you know, enlisted me into this assignment, I thought about it, um, you know, and I said, you know, something. Um, I'm looking around and everyone seems to be thriving at it. You know, uh, you didn't read about the massive arrests or anything else at that point. And I said, yeah, I'll, let me go. I'll try it. You know, so I tell think, me how the know, evening ended up. What happened? You offloaded the mother ships and the speed boats. We offloaded boats. it off, uh, pretty close to, uh, our assignment was to go to a house with a dog off Coco Plum. A stash house? Uh... I guess it was a stash. Yeah, it was a stash. So, what a house with a marina? It was a house and it was with the, the. It had a boat garage. Oh wow! Where we pulled in and we were able to unload in a garage, which was it was amazing. It was a great property. It was uh, undescribable. So you guys and, weren't followed by anybody or coast guard or police or anything. Weren't followed, but I'll tell you something. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was. I probably needed a second pair of underwear by the time we got the boat back to the dock. Uh, you know, it was, it was scary. We were racing the boat back at a high speed. We had all this weight, and we probably had over th- or close to a thousand pounds of pot and, you know, duffels and what have you. And we unloaded it. You know, I mean, I didn't know what to expect. It was like, you know, see ya, see ya, see ya. And we all left. You know, I went home. I don't, don't think I went to sleep that night. Uh, you know, and uh, I got a, it was still a day or two before I had to go back to bartending. I got a call and says, hey, 
you know, I got something for you. And I went to see the guys. I, honestly, no one said to me what the dollar amount I was going to get paid for this little misadventure. But what it turned out to be, I was paid $25,000. In an in envelope? A, in a manila envelope. What, in and, 20s and 50s? What was that? Uh, they were primarily in hundreds. I mean, there were some 50s in there also. But What were you getting paid for that bartending job? Well, as I said, it was, it was uh, kind of a gangster bar. And, I mean, there were, were nights I could make $500 or $1,000 in a night. You know, if the right guy came in, if Alvaro came in, or even the legitimate guys like, uh, you know, Manny. I don't know if I want to mention his last name. was a banker. Uh, would leave $50 tip or something on it. Sure, check. sure. So, so fast forward for me. When did you first try cocaine? All right. Uh, it, 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 it was during that period when I was at Club Alexandre. Um, you know, I mean, I would be handed constantly throughout the night bills folded up with cocaine in it. And I'd laugh, and, you know, I don't think I... Well, I know I didn't do the first couple envelopes I was handed or dollar or bills filled with Coke. Uh, but then I noticed something strange. The guys with cocaine, even the ugly guys with cocaine, had all the women. You know, I mean, honestly, uh, you know, I had a, you know, a semi-girlfriend. And uh, it was amazing to see these guys come in and, you know, girls would flock to them like rock stars. They'd get up, they'd walk to the table, they would talk, then the couple, like, the girls would get up together, go to the ladies' room for 20 minutes and come out. And I said, hey, you know, there's something going on here, you know? I mean, uh, you don't have to be a genius to see that, you know, I mean, this particular substance, uh, you know, w was better than an American Express card. Wow. Yeah, wow. You know, I mean, believe me, this kid didn't pop his cherry until he was like 19 years old. So, you know, this was a, a major elevation. So I understand. Did you, um, one, when did you try it? Was it at the club? Was it with these guys? It, it was actually with a couple of the club owners. Uh, it was one night after work. There was a guy, another name I won't mention, whose father was a former president of Cuba, who we would go to an after-hours club called Sammy's, which was opened about 8 in the morning. We'd leave the club about 4 or 5. We'd close the club. We'd go to Sammy's till about 7 or 8. We'd come out in suits and sunglasses because kids would be whizzing by on bicycles going to the beach, and we were trying to make it home at 7 or 8 a.m. Let me tell you, also the cocaine seemed to make the work easier. I mean, I would... You know, get home, I'd be coked up, I would sleep, I'd get up, I'd do a little coke before work, uh, and it became, you know, kind of habit-forming. And did you take on more gigs immediately? I would have to think that being handed a $25,000 envelope, cold card cash, made you want the next gig, maybe the adrenaline rush. Well, it wasn't like they were saying, hey, we got a job for you next week. I let them know I was available. Uh, I kind of liked it, and... You know, but, you know, then again, I wasn't really spending money at that point. I was saving it, and, you know, I was, I had to say I was a little scared. I mean, you know, I, I definitely had the adrenaline rush and high, but, you know, there was a side of me that's saying, hey, you know, uh, you know, you may think you're one of these guys, or you may think you're a gangster, but, you know, I'm that, I'm that Robin Farzad, nice Jewish kid from North Miami Beach, who, you know, had Rabbi Lipschitz. So I wasn't, you know, hardcore, although... I thought I was, and, um, you know, things progressed until the next opportunity arose. When was the next opportunity? Um, you know, it was probably about four months later. It wasn't overnight. In fact, uh, I had gotten in a little trouble with the club with the owner uh, because I was getting to be, I guess, too friendly with the customer, so to speak. Uh, and they said, look, I want you to decide if you want to be a customer or you decide if you want to work here. And I kind of laughed and I, you know, I was making a lot of money, but I always thought, well, you know, I'm going to make money now. Um, and eventually, uh, about the time they asked me to leave the gig, uh, there was an operation called, oper a money laundering operation called Black Tuna. Involved a couple of the club owners and the club was shut down. Me leaving the club at the time they asked me to leave, uh, it would have happened within a month or two anyway. When did you feel like, you know what, I can freelance? I don't need to be given a W-whatever form. I can be paid in cold, hard cash. I have 
you know, I could fake it until I make it with these guys. I met enough people at this uh, lounge at the speakeasy to get uh, more smuggling gigs. Well, it was it was like, you know, I mean, as I said, I was saving my money. I, I was working three or four nights a week at the main night's tending bar. I mean, it was they were trying to make it like a Studio 54. They made me wear, believe it or not, if you saw my legs now, I was wearing hot pants and like a basketball shirt. Uh, I was a good-looking kid if I would, you know. I think I gave you one of the pictures with... Uh, sure, I'll uh, post it. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I quickly understood what was going on. I And, you know, I had friends that would occasionally come down from the Northeast. I had a lot more friends that went to Columbia University than BU. And they would come in. First thing they'd do is call Owen and said, Hey, Owen, uh, we hear there's this magical, you know, this wonderful substance called cocaine. And would you know anybody to call? And that got me thinking. Uh, these friends of mine all came, you know, very rich families, uh, steel company owners, uh, you name it. And they said, Come down here. And they say, Look, you know, what can you do for me? We have a party on the 4th of July, you know, we want like, what does an ounce go for? Uh, can you get us two or three ounces? You know, we're all going to go in, chip in, and have this party. And, you know, I, you know, I, I was the man with a plan. Full disclosure, stay with us. You were listening to some of the episode, The Wicked Sun, a special Passover full disclosure. Catch it in its entirety wherever you get your podcasts. We are, of course, on Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. To close out this special episode of Full Disclosure meets Hotel Scarface, here's some of my talk with Ricardo Morales Jr., son of maybe the most infamous man in Miami history. His late father, Ricardo Monkey Morales, was a cold warrior, an informant, a demolitions expert, spy, mercenary, cocaine provocateur, Nazi hunters, quoter of military histories. His son is trying to pierce together his tormented story. There is a fascinating anecdote that I know, uh, especially you and I got in touch after, you know, as my book was being published in 2017, I think we got in touch over Twitter, like, hey, why are you posting a photo of my father? I was like, wow, I found him now. Uh, It would have been useful to find you for the book, but we've struck up quite a conversation since and sharing notes about, you know, my 20 year fascination, 20 plus year fascination with your father's journey. I'm citing a famous feature story. It was uh, the cover story of Harper's Magazine uh, back in January 1982. Miami does business, drugs and terrorism in America's Casablanca. Uh, The main source for John Rothschild, who was the author, the late uh, Miami Beach-based author, your father helped him out with the story. And he shares this anecdote, which is just so irresistible. Let me read it. Uh, Morales, Ricardo Morales, has been impressing Miami with high-voltage performances. And this is an anecdote that he shares. A man I know once made a surprise visit to Morales' apartment. He told Morales' girlfriend who answered the door that he wanted to have a friendly chat with Ricardo. He was invited to sit in the living room while Morales finished taking a shower. When Morales entered the room, he marched directly to the visitor's briefcase and opened it without asking permission. The visitor was too startled to object. Morales dredged up the tape recorder, which was already running. He removed the tape cassette and put it in his shirt pocket. He shook out the batteries and placed them at the opposite ends of the mantelpiece, like trophies. Then he returned the neutralized recorder to the briefcase. So far, Morales had not said a word. Then Morales pulled out his revolver and laid it on the coffee table. He had disarmed his visitor, and now he's offering up his own concealed weapon for the visitor's inspection. My friend lacked the wit to empty the gun and place the bullets on the mantelpiece next to the batteries. Morales got out a couple of glasses from a cabinet and poured some Chivas Regal. His mood had shifted from menacing to jovial. Now, he said, we can talk. That's the Morales style. Rick Jr., I'm sure you've been regaled with stories like this for, what, four or five decades? Yeah, I've, been, I've, heard, I've heard that story a couple of times. I've read it. Um, but it gives you a pretty good synopsis of who my father was in that he uh, would make sure you knew he was in charge, make sure you had a, some fear in you, what was going on around him, he knew. And then let you know that now that we're square, you're a good guy. I'm a good guy. Let's do things. Because he just wanted you to know that he was he could do things, but he didn't want you to be fair for the rest of your life. It's not like it's going to haunt you. 
What was your first memory of your father here in the United States? My first memory of my father in the United States is uh, there's there's a lot of little ones. Um, him being in the house and us being in bed watching TV. There's fishing trips down to Key Biscayne where we would go fishing and he would talk to us on the way down and, you know, try to try to explain himself to us a little bit. When we were younger, those conversations didn't make any sense. But uh, those are the early memories that I still have. And at what age do you faintly recall, I guess, your father disappearing for weeks and months on on end? As we discuss, in the 1960s, his first decade in the United States, he was a notorious freelancer. He would take contract hit jobs and uh, bomb people's boats and scuba dive through the marina just to scare them. Um, You know, there were the bookie wars going on in Miami Beach and the Jewish and Italian mobs were blowing things up. And the Cubans who were here, who had been waiting for a rematch to take out Fidel Castro, didn't quite get it. So they went out and kind of offered their services freelance as your father did. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I think the memories are few and far between is that he was really never around. I didn't know it when I was a child. I figured everything was the same way everywhere that fathers went away and did things. But yeah, I remember the first time, I couldn't tell you, I must have been young, 10, I can't remember, we can probably figure out the age, was when he was coming out of a courtroom, there's video of that, from a trial, the TikToks trial, and I saw him on TV, and that's when I knew things were bigger than just a, a normal father. Hmm. You know, I, I just can't believe it, if you go back and they're things that are being declassified piece by piece by piece by the CIA. I mean, uh, links to the JFK assassination, all the shady things that happened in Miami in the 1960s. Tell us about your journey to understand your father. I mean, there are so many crumbs that he left since his death at the end of 1982. Informant records, letters that he wrote people. It seemed like he knew he was not going to be long for this world, and it would take family and friends and journalists and everybody to kind of fully unwrap the story. It would take decades and a lot of cooperation from a government that has not always been cooperative. Yeah, very true. Um, And we've been working on getting those uh, CIA files declassified, but that is a struggle in itself. Uh, I remember my dad, I did some research on him once I started getting into the 15, 16 year old range. And, uh, and I started learning about stuff and then the airliner incident where the airplane blows up. And that's when I started figuring it out. But he would take us shooting out into the Everglades and he would take us uh, on little trips here and there. And he would tell us about stuff and he would let us in on some of the stuff. You know, even now, after his death, they won't declassify most of the information. So, I am uh, taking a letter from 1968 that was written by... The Rebel Army in Exile, this is a group of uh, anti-Castro activists in Miami, of which there were many that your father was a part of. I want to read the letter from uh, the director of the Rebel Army in Exile, distinguished army countrymen. The Rebel Army in Exile wants to make known through this newspaper its energetic protest for the detention arrest of the tireless fighter for the cause of democracy, Ricardo Morales Navarrete, who has been accused of placing bombs and establishments catering to the delivery of clothing and medicine to Cuba. We want to make it clear we do not support terrorist acts that put innocent lives in danger. That is why the young Navarrete is innocent of the accusations, and we feel his arrest and his bond set at $25,000 is unjust. The bond cannot be obtained by his family since the economic situation of Morales and his family is like that of the majority of the Cuban exiles in this country, that they have to work in order to support their families. That is why we ask the authorities in this case, as each day goes by, is unfair to Ricardo Morales Navarrete. His children and his wife suffer more hardship because they depend on him for substance, which is sick. It should be subsistence. Also, for the general public that is unfamiliar with the young Morales, we show a picture of the young Morales when he was fighting communism in the Congo. What he has done for Cuban freedom, there is no need to speak. And those that have not turned their backs on the Cuban tragedy know him. Do you remember this incident when your father was arrested in 1968? How old were you? Yeah. What's, what year is it again? 1968. 68. I'm five years old. I do not. I remember he was not around. So, But I remember because my whole family was involved also because my uncle, Hector Cornelot, was also with my father, the ones that were placing bombs. There was factions that were placing bombs and there were competing factions that were placing bombs. 
And some of them were pro-Castro and some of them were anti-Castro. So my dad was trying to get involved in that for the FBI to try to figure out who's doing what for what reason. So who's doing it pro-Castro-wise, who's doing it anti-Castro-wise. So he was trying to provide all the information at those times to the officers. That's why he would plant bombs that didn't work on some targets because he knew they weren't pro-Castro, they were anti-Castro. So some of the devices would go sure, off. Sure. That was part of the games that he played. Now, did you ever ask your mother or your father point blank, like, what do you do? What does daddy do? Why is daddy gone? Why did you just understand that daddy was gone all the time? Yeah, no, that, that uh, by the time we would hang out with him, we knew what daddy did. I never had to ask because not only it was on the news quite a bit back then, you would see stories on the news and you would read the newspapers and everybody told you, yeah, your dad's the one that's out blowing things up or your dad's a this or your dad's that. And they didn't know. So we had to take it as children. You believe a lot of the things they talk about your dad. And then so I grew up believing he was uh, some kind of drug dealer for a lot of years. And then the political stuff started coming out. And that's when I got wise. You were listening to some of the episode, The Legends of Ricardo Monkey Morales. Catch it in its entirety wherever you get your podcasts. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan and Case Graham at Notterly. Again, if you're listening to us on the radio, note that while we often cut for broadcast link, the entirety of every interview is available on podcast on Extended Pod. The link, please subscribe, is fullderadio.com. Again, fullderadio.com. You can follow on all the socials at handle Full D Radio. A shout out to our listeners on Radio IQ, Virginia Public Radio, across the great commonwealth. We are in North Carolina on WPBM, out in California on KPPQ. Message me to carry full disclosure on your air. My DMs are always open. Stay tuned for a roster of big live events at the University of Richmond, including Chef Sonny Bowija, NPR Stevens, Keep, MSNBC's Rashida Jones, and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg in December. And catch me every week in the meantime on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Mm-hmm.